This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Phone lines are always open. We love it when you call. Please do. 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. Harold, what are your thoughts? Who's the bully here? Well, actually, it's it's the premier who's the bully because it's not only just uh, Ron Joyce's two outlets. There's uh, it's starting to go to six more in Vaughn. Yeah. So there's that. Plus, why isn't she yelling at Loblaws and Sobeys and Metro? Uh, Loblaws in the last three four months have shut down 22 stores, claiming non profitability. Uh, now you've got them closing down instead of 24 hours a day. They're only open 16. And, you know, it's all to do with a minimum wage and trying to save money. So she should be yelling at these places, too. Uh, I'll play devil's advocate here, Harold. Uh, are you against people making a, liv- a livable minimum wage? Absolutely not. I was in charge of the CAW, uh, one of my locals, uh, for many, many years. And, I mean, I've always been fighting for the rights of the employees to have a minimum wage that was decent. But the problem is she brought it in so fast that nobody had a chance to, well, whether it's raise your prices or whether it's, uh, you know, see what they could do to increase their profitability so that they can pay the wage. Yeah, again, you know, as I've said before, Harold, uh, to me it reminds me very much of the electricity file. Not that it's not a great idea, but too much, too soon, no due diligence, no cost uh, cost analysis, no plan whatsoever. And you don't need to be subsidizing electric cars at the cost of taxpayers, and you don't need to be subsidizing wind turbine companies, because if they're as good as they are, they should be able to make it on their own. All right, Harold, thanks for the call. Much appreciated. Bye. You know, it'll be interesting to see uh, how this all pans out. It'll be interesting to see how this pans out, because obviously uh, the situation uh, yesterday when all of this uh, started and the the premier made the comment in regards to uh, these franchisee owners being uh, bullies, uh, everybody jumped on board and said, yeah, down with the Tim Hortons, boycott Timmy's, they make so much money, and da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And, and, you know, uh, and, and certainly with picking on this family, I mean, my goodness, they're the, they're the founding uh, father's uh, kids. So, yeah, they're worth a lot of dough. No two ways about it. A lot of donut dough. But what about the others that aren't? And again, when you're seeing, and again, this is not being against an increase in the minimum wage, but again, I'll draw the, I'll draw the parallel between the electricity system. Too much, way too fast, with no plan, no cost analysis, no due diligence. Another similarity, a boatload of experts saying, slow down. And as I talked to the premier on this show, it was all about being first, being first, being first. For what? Bragging rights because there's an election coming? When just as with the electricity system, all the provinces are looking at this and go, okay, here's another lesson on how not to do it. Like, again, great ideas. Hearts in the right place. But absolutely no business sense whatsoever. To the point where now employees of a great company that, that you know, would provide a lot of jobs uh, at this level who, who, who paid perhaps minimum wage but at least spread the love through the benefits, 
Now it's the employee that's losing out. And this is just like the energy mistake when she goes, Oh my God, I didn't realize this was going to cost you so much. Oh, and I didn't realize you weren't willing to pay it. Because I think you're all bad actors. It's the same sort of thing. Gee, I didn't realize this was going to happen. Well, how can you not? When you've got a boatload of experts telling you otherwise. So once again, taking a great idea and tarnished it because she has absolutely no business sense, no cost analysis, does no due diligence, just listens to the tree huggers, just blind eye activism. And this is all about trying to win an election. But I'm not sure which way the pendulum's going to swing. Whether from now to the election, everyone is just going to boycott Tim Hortons and, and, and pee all over them on, on social media. Or whether this is going to swing back and, and, and the people who are receiving minimum wage are, going, are, going, are saying, Kathleen Wynne, you've cost me money here. Again, no different than the hydro scenario. You know, there's people in rural Ontario who've been using clean electricity for years that now can't afford it. They're gasifying or burning more wood. They can't afford clean energy anymore because Kathleen Wynne's driven it through the roof. Same thing's happening here. No cost analysis, no due diligence. Just get her done. It's, it's unbelievable. And again, if you disagree with her antics, then you're, what kind of capitalistic pig are you? You don't think people should make a livable minimum wage? You don't think we should be, you think we should st stop destroying the environment? Whoa, what's with this extreme left? What about us in the middle? It's not that we disagree with the energy plan, or sorry, we disagree with clean energy. We disagree in the way it's being implemented. It's not that we disagree with the increase in minimum wage. It's the way you're ramming it through. You've been in, this party's been in power for almost 15 years. Why the hell are they doing this in the last six months of what could be the last mandate? Why now? I find it fascinating. And I'd love to hear from you. 905-645-3221-9900 on your cell. Joining us now to talk about the PR aspect of this, Alyssa Freeman, public relations consultant. You can read her stuff in Huffington Post, PR Canada, or sorry, Canada.com, PR Daily. She's with us now. Alyssa, how are you today? Oh, Scott, nothing compared to you. You are fired up. I love that. Uh, but just your calming voice soothes me. Some of my best moments are when I'm on hold waiting for you. All right. Uh, <laughs> hey, there's the quote of the day. Uh, let me print that one. All right. So what are your thoughts on it? And again, you know, it, it seems if we criticize this, we're against the increasing the minimum wage. I mean, it's just it, this is exactly like the electricity file to me. But uh, that being said, your thoughts. Okay. Well, there's two sides to the PR story here. Number one, um, there's the liberal PR story, because this is kind of a win-win, a no pun, no pun intended, or should I say win-win-win yeah. situation. So they increase the uh, minimum wage. You know, that's a win. You know, they increase it so that more people can make more money, and that's a win. And where is it a loss? It's, for, it's a loss for people who actually have to shell out the dough. Mm. So, you know, but when the criticism came in, it's almost a Teflon strategy 
for companies to say, well, I'm going to cut X, Y, and Z because now I've got to pay you more, who sounds like the bad guy here? Yeah. Not the government, mm -hmm. but the company themselves. So there's that. So when you're coming up with a, a strategy, when you're saying, you know, why are we doing this? Well, A, you know, the government is doing this because this is obviously a vote grab. And B, when they do the um, sort of the crisis communications analysis on this, they go through all the pros and cons. And so what are the pros? Well, people are going to be happy with more money. What are the cons? Some businesses are not going to be very happy with shelling that money out. So can we have more of a positive conversation and a positive narrative when it comes, that question comes back to us? And right now, yes. And that's because right now it is just one or two businesses that are starting to complain. Mm -hmm. When it becomes more widespread... Um, it could have an effect, but that will take time. And when you hear businesses complaining, like a Tim Hortons, and then not only is it just a Tim Hortons, it's a Tim Hortons owned by the heir of the Joyce family. Oh, it's a perfect, it's a perfect scenario for uh, the PR people at the Liberal government because you, you, couldn't, you're, you couldn't imagine, uh, you couldn't even make this stuff up. Uh, yeah, you're you're, you're picking on the richest finance uh, franchisee owner in the country, probably, and. Then we go on to the PR side. Let's just talk about Tim Hortons here, okay? You know, if you know this is coming and you know you are one of the biggest companies in Canada that pays staff an hourly wage, where's your crisis communications plan? Hmm. Where is your holding statement? Why don't all the franchisees have this? Why are they freelancing on how they are going to pay their employees? Maybe that's part of the agreement. I don't know. Apparently it is. That is the difference. And, and that's, what their, that's what their release was, was, you know what, uh, as long uh, our, our, our uh, priority is that everybody applies, uh, um, uh, plays by the rules of, of the individual state or, or province or whatever. Uh, but other than that, the, the benefits and the, and the pay packages and everything is up to the individual franchisees, not the company. But at the end of the day, what is hurt? The brand. Is it that individual franchisee? Maybe. But is it the brand, to your point? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So while you're quoting chapter and verse that, listen, you know, franchisees can do what they want when it comes to paying their employees. And, you know, it, I think it's disheartening for me that some Tim Hortons employees have and some are have not. Hmm. Uh, probably all over the country, which has also come to light. I don't think it's a case of have and have nots. And I've had it explained to me as this. If you owned a Tim Hortons 10 years ago, you did quite well. But since it's been purchased out, they're sucking all the money out of it. So back in the day when people were making lots of money off of Tim Hortons franchises, they had no problem with overpaying and giving extra benefits to the employees of Tim Hortons. I mean, they pay for 100% of, uh, I believe it's their dental, and, and so on and so forth. So, uh, paid breaks as well. So they went over and above as sort of an incentive, uh, you know, in a way of sharing the wealth. But now that the franchisees getting pinched by the, by the head office, then they just can't afford to give the employees those perks anymore. Well, you know, and perhaps... That's how I had it sold up. to me. Yes, I understand that. And I... It, you know, you're likely 100% correct. But the thing is, is that the, obviously this has been a build of anger on behalf of the franchisees. Yeah. So, you know, you have uh, a way of working that you've been doing so for the past 10 years, and it's worked out really well. And then suddenly you get bought up, they get bought up by a bigger company, and that relationship between the franchisee and the head office, as we have read all over the media, is tenuous at best. Mm-hmm. So it's a build, it's a build, and suddenly minimum wage comes in as the straw that breaks the camel's back. Yeah. 
still, if you're a big company that has bought another big and loved and, you know, basically customer loyal company like Tim Hortons, you really need to have your communications act together. Mm. You can't tell me that as soon as this minimum wage uh, business started, even the rumblings that it was going to have, even when it went up to, uh, I think it was $11 first, and now it's up to, what, $14 for now, you can't tell me you haven't had enough time to get your communications ducks in a row so that the story doesn't go off the rails. Because all it takes is one franchise, and yet here we have, as we said, a franchise owned by the heirs of the Joyce family, to start to bring it, bring down customer loyalty. And when you read, when I was on the web, news websites, and I'm reading, how you know, how were people reacting? You know, Tim Hortons coffee, you know, paying two bucks for coffee is is the great economic equalizer, right? Hmm. But it doesn't matter what economic station yep. you are in life. If you like Tim Hortons, you're going to go in there and pay your two dollars, no matter how you earned it. So knowing that this is the great economic equalizer and puts everybody on a level playing field as far as your customer base is concerned, you don't have a lot of margin of error in ticking them off. Hmm. So, so based on that, it'll be interesting to see if they what, what they will do. So do you think the boycott Tim Hortons hashtag will gain traction? Do you think, uh, or, or do you think the pendulum will swing back and this will become... Uh, a vehicle for small business? I think that, it, you know, it'll be interesting to see how it does play out because not everybody, you know, is going to have the narrative traction that a Tim Hortons will. And I also think that, you know, it also depends if other franchises fall suit, mm-hmm. fall in line, uh, if that's the case. So I think that a lot of things have to happen in sort of a cascading effect. If you know, you know, things like hashtags and things like movements that are started by hashtags, they're very, very hard to measure. And the only way that they'll, you'll ever know is if the company releases, uh, well, they have to, they're a public company, you'll know by a dip in, in, in sales, in quarterly sales. So I, I think that that's one way you'll know. But unless it's really, people want coffee to <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, you know yeah, I mean? yeah. And, and you know what I think? I, I think what will what will also be a determining factor here on how far this goes is, you know, does this sort of scenario uh, where there's minimum wage earners who own who are being paid lucrative benefits? Uh, how much how much of that of the, of the minimum uh, minimum wage uh, segment uh, involves employers or employees like that? Will most uh, minimum wage employees lose out, or will most minimum wage employees gain? And I'm guessing they will gain. You know, I think that remains to be seen. I mean, people have to be paid what the law says they have to be paid. And I think that the government is basing is is hoping that this is sort of, is this going to be a quick new cycle burnout, and that they knew that there was going to be fallout in the first weeks or months um, following the implementation of the higher minimum wage. So, so they were prepared for that. Um, the fact that you know Kathleen Wynne came out and called you know the Tim Hortons or this particular franchisee a bully. Yeah. Um, you know, I'd love to see her numbers, rating numbers at the end of all of this. Because remember, when opportunities happen that fall into their lap, such as this one with Tim Hortons, you know, they all gather in and the communications staff gets in there and says, okay, how do we message this? Would the communications staff say, go call them a bully? Yep. Yeah. Yep, they would. They would think about charged words. 
they would think, what are the words that will resonate with the average? So they uh, told her to say those words. Those words weren't from the cuff. Those were well-planned and thought out. Yes, I don't think anything is from the cuff these days when it comes to politicians, with the exception of the fellow south of the border. (laughs) That's another story. (laughs) All right. Well, you know what? We're almost out of time. And since you brought that up, uh, you know, uh, let's let's put the coffee down for a sec. Because, uh, we, you know, at this point, we'll have to wait and see how this does play out, uh, whether the pendulum swings one way or the other. That being said, can't let you go without hearing your comments on the very public divorce between Donald Trump and Steve Bannon. This is a story that nobody could ever have written. <laughs> you could have said that about 20 times in the last six months. I know, I know. But, it, but again, these are narratives that keep writing themselves. Yeah. And who would have ever thought? I mean, sure... You know, I actually, honestly, I don't think, I would have thought that Steve Bannon was so loyal to Trump that he would have never come out with a tell-all book. Yeah. But I guess, you know, I underestimated his underestimation. And is it really Steve Bannon's tell-all book, though? Is he, or he just, just a contributor to all of this? No, I mean, I mean, listen, you know, Trump is really uh, now starting to target the writer, the author of the yeah. book, Michael Wolff. But he gave and him he, access to the White House. He had a blue pass, apparently. This is what I heard this morning. And he was allowed to be in there. And some people are saying, well, his attributions are a little bit fuzzy. Some of them are not exactly correct. But I will tell you this, Scott. You can't order the book anymore. It is sold out. And Michael Mm. Wolf is on every single morning show. You turn the dial. He was probably running from one block to the other in New York City today. So you ask me who the winner is. Does he care what Trump calls him? No, he doesn't. But what the narrative is putting out there is that the inner circle is starting to think a certain way about him. And whether this affects his base or not remains to be seen. There are some people say that, nope, the base doesn't care. And they'll continue to vote for him. And it's interesting that they're sort of attacking this as fake news. Uh, you know, a lot of it's uh, just salacious, but you don't see Steve Bannon denying any of it. <clears throat> no, you don't. And he actually has a radio show, and he was at, he was saying that... And he loves him now. And, and, exactly. So he has used this for his own gain. You know, when I watch Saturday Night Live and they portray Steve Bannon as the Grim Reaper, I don't think Trump ever thought that he would be his own Grim Reaper. Alyssa Freeman has been with us, public relations consultant. You can read her in HuffingtonPostCanada.com, PR Daily. Alyssa, as always, thank you for the time. Have a great weekend. And you too, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Time for another edition of Twit This Week in Trump. Uh, and it has been quite a week, of course, with excerpts being released of uh, the uh, a new book by Michael Wolff. Uh, this was supposed to come out on Tuesday, but it's been bumped up to today because of uh, simply all of the publicity as excerpts are starting to be published, including from Steve Bannon, who everybody says this is all fake, but Steve Bannon has done absolutely nothing to deny anything that he has said. Uh, here's what the author, Michael Wolff, had to say on just hanging out at the White House and talking to Trump advisors. They say he's um, a, a moron, an idiot. Um, actually, there's a competition to sort of get to the bottom line here of who this man is. Let's remember, this man does not read, does not listen. They all say he is like a child. And what they mean by that is he has an, a need for immediate gratification. It's all about him. All right, let's bring in Michael Diamond, conservative political pundit. He is with us now. Michael, when you thought the story just couldn't get any wackier. What and you... it happened. <laughs> <laughs> so is this it for Trump and Bannon? 
Oh yeah, I think you know Steve Bannon has uh, worn out his, uh, his his welcome, and it definitely started when he went against the president's choice in uh, Alabama for the Republican right. senatorial uh, nomination, and and now now Donald Trump's even hinted at that that you know that uh, Steve Bannon's only a winner when he's with Trump, and when he picks a guy, he picks a loser like Roy Moore. So you know Trump Trump is right to be upset. You know uh, Steve Bannon. Uh, definitely brought order to a very chaotic uh, campaign, and I don't think that uh, Donald Trump should under, uh, undervalue uh, what Steve Bannon uh, brought uh, to his campaign when he came in in August after uh, Paul Manafort had to, had to uh, be disposed of. Uh, so so he, sh- he shouldn't forget that, and he should dance with the one to bring it, but, but on that same token, Steve Bannon has decided that he is more important uh, th- than the president. He is more important than the uh, Make America Great Again agenda that they they were pursuing together and uh, you, you can't survive something like that you know in politics we talk about people start believing their own clippings or their own uh, their own press uh, their own press clippings and uh, Steve Bannon classic classic case of that he, uh, he 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 actually bought into the fact that he was the uh, smartest guy that he was the brains behind the operation you never saw Carl Rove or Dick Cheney even though they were often credited uh, pretending or acting as if they were more important than the president uh, dance with the one that brung you Some Somehow that 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 line fits here, doesn't it? It's <laughs> well, just... you know, they break, these guys break all the rules, so uh, it's uh, it's a new normal, I suppose. But we. Uh, Hopefully we can get back to some stability, but uh, you know I think for the president and for if you look at the re- reaction from certain Republicans, uh, Mitch McConnell, for example, who who knew that uh, Steve Bannon was coming after him and that Steve Bannon was no friend of of him and the more establishment wing of the Republican Party, he put out his uh, senatorial election campaign team put out a great tweet and it was just a gif of McConnell smiling and he's not the most likable fellow, but uh, you know I think a lot of people it took Steve Bannon to unite. Uh, Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell on an issue. That's interesting. Um, a lot of people are saying fake news, fake, fake, fake. There's nothing true about any of this stuff, but nobody's denying it. Like, well, I shouldn't say that, but certainly Steve Bannon isn't denying any of it. Well, exactly. Steve Bannon had the opportunity on his uh, uh, satellite radio program yesterday to the night. He has a very large microphone between that and Breitbart and, and his uh, just profile, and he has not come out there to uh, to deny it. And you've seen, you know, both Donald uh, Trump Jr. and the statements from the president, where so they, you know. Uh, uh, Mr. Wolf is not the one here whose credibility is being attacked, which uh, if it was indeed quote-unquote fake news, that's what we'd be seeing right now. Hmm. Uh, and, and on the radio show, he said he seemed to, well, yeah, I still support him, yeah. Which yeah, was very and, odd. Uh, he, he said, yeah, that uh, they still are united on the MAGA agenda, but, uh, you know, uh, his son committed treason and an idiot. And, <laughs> and I, I really uh, made comments that if anyone actually truly believes are going to be incredibly damaging to his presidency and his legacy. But I'm you know, biggest supporter. How much of what Bannon said do you think is true, including the stuff about Don Jr. being cracked open like an egg? Oh, I, you know what? I, I don't think there's any reason to doubt what Mr. Bannon uh, said mm-hmm. is, is true in his actual opinion uh, of the fact. That doesn't mean it was wise of him to say it, uh, and that also means it's going to be much more problematic. But, you know, it's important with these things. You don't wait until we can read the whole book, because so often uh, publishers are very good at serializing uh, the very most uh, tantalizing parts uh, of their interviews to increase sales. And they certainly did a fantastic job on this. Donald Trump, uh, I, I 
he should really have to release his tax returns now because uh, if he owns uh, any any stake in the publishing house for this book, he just made himself millions and millions of dollars uh, mm. by, uh, by 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 being the best promotion this book could have had uh, by uh, by his uh, the statement and and the. Um, the publicity he's given it. So it would be very interesting to see. But, you know, it's really important. You know, you got to take these full things in context. If you look a few months ago or two months ago, Donna Brazil's book came out, and certainly the most uh, tantalizing quotes were pushed out for uh, to the media yeah. for interviews to promote it. And, you know, I just finished it yesterday, and, and frankly, it's... Uh, kind of a letdown when you when mm. you think of how exciting the promotions were like watching a great movie trailer only to be disappointed once you're in the theater i saw all the best parts already yeah exactly uh this that being said uh you know uh, sarah sanders the press secretary came out and said the other day that you know disgusted in this uh uh false news fake news and and all this sort of and like look at his at wolf's history and the, and the sort of stuff that he does and how salacious it is then why did they let the guy run around the White House uncontrolled. Well, a- a- absolutely, and apparently what it was is he did a profile for a uh, Hollywood magazine uh, during the campaign, and apparently it was a terrible profile, but the cover of the magazine was great, and the president, or the, the candidate, uh, Mr. Trump, looked wonderful, and that appealed to his vanity. So that's how, that being and, that, and, and yeah. I guess just too disorganized a White House at that time to check, have checks and balances in place for this? When the president, you know, uh, according to Mr. Wolf, isn't big on reading, so the cover of the magazine will be much more important than the story. Uh, you know what is interesting is uh, on Sarah Huckabee Sanders, uh, you think back, uh, George W. Bush, the first book to be released uh, on, on George W. Bush's presidency was by Canadian David Frum, who was uh, briefly a speechwriter. Uh, left, and he wrote a book that was generally uh, positive on, on the Bush administration at that time. It was released after September 11th, and uh, he, he talked about being a reluctant Bush supporter, but that he really filled a void that was needed for the country at the right time. And I remember uh, when it was released uh, at a White House press briefing, I believe it was Ari Fleischer, was still the press secretary, was asked about the book, and his comment was, I'm just going to add this book to the pile of books that I don't have time to read. And that's really the, the right line on this. You know, the more that the, the White House is uh, talking about how terrible this book is, the more people are going to want to read it. And, yeah, I mean, Trump's not going to let this go either. He's going to be tweeting about this for a while, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. Especially, you know, we know they were trying to get an injunction. And, that, uh, I believe and what about that? What about the legal action he's, you know, and the cease and desist and stuff? I mean, is that just selling another million copies of the book? Oh, a- exactly. And, you know, I saw somebody tweet yesterday. I thought it was quite funny that uh, future, uh, you know, uh, public relations consultants who aren't born yet will one day tell their clients that uh, this is the best earned media you can get short of a cease and desist letter from the president. Uh, lots are questioning his fitness for the office, even his mental health. Uh, you know, because this thing has blown up now, we've we pretty much put on the back burner the whole situation with whose button's bigger and whose works. Um, when you start getting uh, comments like that in regard to nuclear war, when this sort of thing starts happening, when his right-hand man uh, appears to have turned against him, what, what about the mental health aspect of all of this? You know, I think it is so terribly irresponsible of any of these uh, mental health professionals uh, and, and media uh, uh, media personalities who are commenting on this. You cannot assess someone's mental health without actually uh, assessing yeah. them. These are these are diagnoses that are so 
hard to make, you know, that it could take, uh, it could take months and months and months of, uh, talk therapy and psychiatric care to actually determine this. So it's really, you know, just because we don't necessarily like the guy, we don't agree with him, we think he mm. behaves in a strange manner, to try and, uh, it's such a modern, uh, solution to, to slap a medical label on everything that, uh, we have an issue with. And it's really irresponsible. I totally get that, and, and that was well said, Michael. But on the other hand, when someone stands up and starts comparing the size of their button to another a dictator uh, or a, to a dictator on the world stage, you got you to gotta quit. Oh, no, no, no. We have a definition for that. It's idiocy. <laughs> It's all mental health. Uh, good point. Good point. It's, Very you know, good point. Like, we don't need to look. That's good. Yeah, you make up a valid point. And it was it, look. It was hilarious. We shouldn't be provoking. You know, uh, uh, North Korea. I don't think he was. I think he was. You know. He, he he remains a very sloppy messenger with a very important message, and he was during the campaign, and that's why so many of the you know. Um, deplorables, as uh, Hillary called them, came out and voted for him because it doesn't matter how he said it. He's actually saying what so many people want to hear. And after Barack Obama on foreign policy, drawing red lines and then doing nothing and allowing America to be trampled on like a yoga mat, uh, pe- people, I think, are actually now excited. And, and frankly, I'm, I'm a neoconservative. I would have voted for Lindsey Graham for the Republican nomination because, you know, I, I definitely subscribe to the Lindsey Graham and John McCain view of the world. And that's one of the reasons I was so disgusted with the idea of President Trump, but he's actually on those issues turned out to be pretty good. So I don't like how he says it, but thank God he's saying it. Uh, is uh, is Trump using the term sloppy Steve? Sloppy Steve, that's a good one. I, I, heard, that. I heard that just this morning. <laughs> Apparently he's calling him sloppy Steve. You know, I mean, uh, why not? Know, that, that sounds that, good. That one, it, it works. It fits with his, <laughs> uh, it fits with his general. You know, there's that online Trump uh, insult nickname generator. So if you put in Steve, it probably would generate sloppy Steve. And, you know, uh, with Bannon, he, he puts this, you know, he likes to refer to himself as Dark Vader. You know, he, he builds this up. And uh, Roger Stone, the Trump longtime confidant friend and sometimes a lobbyist and consultant who's quite controversial, does every year uh, for the last number of years a, a best and worst dress list. And he puts Steve Bannon, who's a friend of his, on the worst dress list because, you know, the double shirts, it's just, you know, shocking. And, and, and Steve Bannon, you know, he doesn't have Trump money, but this is a very wealthy man. He made a ton of money both on Wall Street and later in Hollywood. He actually owns a portion of the rights to the Seinfeld syndication deal uh, through his time at uh, Castle Rock uh, Entertainment. So that was a huge deal. So he, he has a lot of money. He can afford one nice shirt instead of two really bad shirts to wear together. <laughs> uh, this is typical of a supporter. Here's an email. Uh, keep whining about the president, Scott. You have another seven years to do so. He won, and you cannot accept that, and what a great job he is doing. You and your one-sided guests are a joke. Nick. <laughs> so what are your thoughts? Uh, you know, I, I, I think that uh, I'd like this uh, person to actually listen to what we're talking about, because I think, you know, in many ways, uh, we, when we talk, are, are quite pleased to recognize when the president does something right. But that doesn't You mean are a conservative, are you not, Michael? I'm absolutely a conservative. <laughs> and, you know, in a two-way race between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, I absolutely would have voted for Donald Trump. He would not have been my first choice for the Republican nomination. He wouldn't have been my 15th choice, and there were 16th candidates for the Republican nomination. But uh, against Hillary Clinton, I absolutely would have voted for him, and I'm thrilled 
thrilled that she's not president. But uh, uh, all all presidents, regardless of uh, party or style, are capable of doing good and they're capable of doing bad. Barack Obama uh, did did some good things for the country. I just uh, would take me a couple hours to think of them. But uh, you know, George W. Bush, I think, was an excellent president who made some big mistakes, and uh, you know, his handling of Hurricane Katrina was a, a complete and utter disaster, and will tarnish his uh, otherwise, I think, fairly good record. But to, to just give Donald Trump carte blanche because you think he's funny or he, he sticks it to the establishment uh, is a huge mistake. But, but from the same token, so many in the media and the liberals uh, and liberals, small L liberals, are so quick to criticize everything he does that mm-hmm. they lose credibility. So, you know, when the media, I, I think it is ridiculous the amount of time he spends at Trump resorts. And I thought, you know, uh, he, he, he especially considering how much he attacked Barack Obama for his much more modest vacation schedule. But let's stop talking about it, everyone, because when we focus on him going to Mar-a-Lago or his uh, home in New Jersey or back to New York City, you can't actually focus on the serious stuff that he's doing wrong. Uh, and, he, and he points to that. Donald Trump's very much like my old boss, Rob Ford. You give him an inch, he'll take a mile. So yeah. if you're not extra, extra careful in your criticism of him, he will exploit that, turn it around to make it crooked, fake, uh, news media, lion, failing CNN, yeah. whatever. Uh, let me ask you this, Michael. If there was another person uh, sitting in that chair except Donald Trump, how would we be viewing the success of this government? Look, you know what? I mean, absolutely, because you, you look at the markets, you look at the job numbers, you look at the tax cuts. He has had some, you, you look at getting a Supreme Court uh, justice uh, nominated and confirmed just in the first year. He's had some really good successes. He's also uh, showed some ideological flexibility, uh, which is, a, frankly, a good trait with uh, taking action uh, in Syria and uh, and moving the embassy in Israel. He's He's... He put out a platform, and he set out to accomplish it. And on many of those issues, he's already had success. And if it weren't for uh, the personality traits, if it weren't for the erratic Twitter behavior, he definitely would be being hailed as a successful president. Yeah, it's unfortunate because he, he is his worst his own worst enemy, isn't he? Isn't he? Absolutely. Yeah. Michael Diamond has been with us, conservative political pundit. Uh, Michael, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you, and good luck on Monday in the uh, very fake and dishonest news media award. Yes. Where do you think that's going? Oh, What's I he going to do with that? Why don't we talk Tuesday? All right, sounds good. Uh, thank you, Michael. Much appreciated. Michael Diamond, conservative political pundit. Uh, 126, 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Uh, Trump's going to have some sort of fake news awards uh, on Monday, which is, you know, very presidential. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. According to the 2017 annual year-end report by Nielsen, the ratings people, uh, Metallica and Lincoln, uh, Lincoln Park saw gains. The rock genre is on the decline. Rap and hip-hop for the first time dominating the charts. To talk more about all of this, Alan Cross is with us, internationally known music journalist and just general guru, and he is with us now. Alan, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. We appreciate this. Oh, a lot of people want to talk about this, yes. So is rock and roll dead? Does it depend on who you ask? Has it been dead for a while? No, dead is, is the wrong term. However, it has ceded its number one position to hip-hop and rap. Um, let's just go back in history for a while. The first 50 years of the, 21st, uh, the 20th century were dominated by jazz. That was the main mm. cultural driver when it came to music. Everything 
centered around jazz. There were other genres. There was you know, folk, for example, and there was classical music, and there was gospel music and marching music and a bunch of other stuff. But jazz was the thing that was driving culture forward musically. And that lasted until about the mid-1950s when this new thing called rock and roll came along, and then all of a sudden all the kids didn't want anything to do with jazz. Hmm. So jazz was pushed into second place. It doesn't mean that jazz died. It doesn't mean that there weren't any jazz fans. It didn't mean that there weren't any jazz fans or jazz records being made or jazz concerts being had. It just fell to number two when it came to pushing cultured, culture forward from a musical point of view. I think this is where we're seeing rock right now. We've, we've seen it um, dominate for 60 years. And... Beginning in about the early 1990s, when hip-hop and rap was really starting to evolve into its own, uh, it things started to get chipped away. And, and now, if we look at a number of indicators, it shows that rap and hip-hop is the number one music driver of culture right now. Doesn't mean rock is dead, doesn't mean rock fans have no place to go, doesn't mean that... Uh, people aren't going to pick up the guitar anymore, but as for something that drives the culture, uh, it's, it's hip-hop. Now, the reason we can say that is if you look at the streaming music charts, and I look at them every single week, it is exceedingly rare that unless your name is Imagine Dragons, hmm. to have a single rock song amongst those top 200 streaming songs. Yeah. Now, there's a couple of reasons for that. First of all, this is a new technology, and a lot of rock fans have yet to embrace it fully. And number two, the major users of streaming music services are young people. Their music right now is hip-hop, rap, and pop. Right. So, as a result, if they're the ones using it, and they're using it to access their music, well, no wonder it looks like rock is... Uh, taking a real far back seat. And, and how much of this lies within, you know, just look, even looking at the top five, number one, Metallica, and number two, Imagine Dragons, number three, The Beatles, uh, ahead of Linkin Park. I mean, the fact that there's a band in there that's as old as it is, what does that say about the health of this? Well, it says that maybe, okay, it says two things. First of all, uh, that the current generation of people under the age of 35, you know, millennials and younger, uh, they are very ecumenical in their tastes. They will listen to a good song regardless of genre or regardless of era. That's mm. one thing it says. Number two, now that you've seen the Beatles there, it's like maybe the older folks, the people over 35, who haven't really wrapped their head around the fact that streaming music is kind of like renting it. You know, you, you, they, they are the generations that believe that you have to possess music to actually listen to it. Yeah. Uh, it, it could show that they're finally getting on board. Uh, rock fans, country fans, and a few others are really, really far behind when it comes to adopting streaming. Uh, pop music, more diverse than it was 20, 30, 40 years ago? I mean, you know, you think back to the 70s, what was played on the radio it was pretty wacky from one extreme to the other. Are we there again? No, I don't think so. If you listen to any top 40 radio broadcast that was recorded back in the middle 1970s, the variety was far, far greater than it is today. Yeah. Now, remember, Top 40 used to be, the idea of Top 40 was uh, you took the biggest songs from each of the genres. Right. There'd be a little country, a little yeah. bit of rock, a little bit of pop, a little yeah. bit of whatever. So there was a huge variety in that sort of stuff. Uh, 
now we don't even call it top forty radio because it, it's really hit radio. So yeah. Whatever the hit songs are, and they tend to be um, they tend to be pop songs. They tend to be hip hop songs. They tend to be R and B songs. Plus, you know, radio stations now much more uh, segregated than they were in the day. I mean, uh, you know, now one specific radio station is designed for one specific genre of music, whereas in the old days when there was two or three, that's, you know, it was all over the road. Yes. So uh, what about the health of the music industry? We heard so much about digital download and, and, you know, there's, there's been a huge transformation here in the last 10 years. What about the health of this industry? Well, the industry has actually come back a long way over the last five years. We, it spent the first decade of this this millennium trying to survive because it was dealing with uh, digital downloads, it was dealing with file sharing, it was dealing with the the drop in, in the sales of physical product. But now, uh, the record labels are all making money now, and they're making money because so many people are streaming. Uh, all three of the major labels. Uh, have reported that they're getting more revenue from streaming than they are selling physical product now. Mm-hmm. And that will tell you that streaming is far, far too big to, to fail. It, it just can't anymore. And again, what's changed here, really, the, the content's the same. What's changed is the method of distribution. Well, that's it, because you know what streaming is? Streaming's radio. Yeah. yeah you know, really. except yeah. that it's a, it's a lot more... Um, uh, user-friendly. User-friendly, or... or customizable by the end user yeah so it's it, there's really no no but but the, the problem with streaming is that when it, it's one song each song is one in one ear and out the other there's nobody on the radio there's nobody with the stream to tell you why that song matters who yeah. played bass on that song what album it came from <laughs> if they're going to be touring if there's something you know the, the 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 guitar player has a weird you know yeah. habit we're it's missing not, the beauty of the liner notes we are. We're missing the beauty of the liner notes, and we're missing the uh, human interaction, the mm. human element of, of presenting stuff on the radio, which is why you and I still have jobs. How do you explain the rise of rap? I remember a time when, uh, you know, complaining about not getting the recognition on the Grammys, and now here we are having this discussion. How do you explain it? It's just a matter of time before people caught up to what was happening uh, with the 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 main consumers of music, which are people under the age of 25. I mean, you bring up the Grammys, you look at, uh, and you look at the Grammy lineup this year, it is uh, very, this is the, probably the smartest lineup of, of Grammy nominees that we've seen in a long time, because if you look at who's nominated for what this year, that's reality. That's who's listening to music. Those are the people going to shows. Those are the people that are, are, are streaming music. So uh, it, it has this is a bit of a tipping point because not only do we look at the Grammys, we can also look at uh, what what's been booked for the Coachella Festival in in mm-hmm. in um, um, California for April. I mean the the the, hip, the openers, the headliners are are Beyonce and The Weeknd and Eminem. There's still rock on the bill, but it's in a much smaller font. How do you explain the rise of this genre? What's the parallel between the rise of rap or hip hop and the rise of rock and roll? Is there any similarities there? Parents hate it. That's, that's exactly that's, what I was thinking, Alan. That's, that's it. Because uh, it's rebellion. It is rebellion because you know, I liked music because my parents hated it. Yeah. And uh, this is, it's been a little tougher for, for the current generation because their parents uh, were all pretty cool when it came to music. It, it wasn't that they were listening to you know big band or, 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 or something really soft and awful. Uh, they were... You know, many of them were rock fans. 
many of them had huge collections of, of really cool music. And while a lot of younger people, and again, we're talking about people who are now probably around you know, 35 or, young, or younger, you know, they went through their parents' record collection. They found a lot of really neat stuff. And yeah. they, they bonded with their parents over music to a great extent. But young people all, when you're young, you want music that speaks to you. You want music that is yours. You don't want to share music with your parents. And that has been the case uh, generation after generation after generation. It's not specific to, to, to hip-hop and rap today. It's not specific to rock uh, in, the, in the past. It's not, there were people who were absolutely, you know, they, they jumped into jazz, and their parents were completely flipped out over it. Mm. There were people who, in, in, in the 1910s, for example, who wanted jazz stamped out because it was this evil, horrible music. And we can go back further and further and further. It's it's just, it, hey, it's the cycle of life. Alan Cross has been with us, music journalist, talking about uh, the 2017 Nielsen, uh, I guess, ratings results uh, showing that uh, hip-hop and rap, for the first time, dominating the charts ahead of rock music. Alan, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. You bet. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.